0: Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital Volume 1 by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash harvey This episode is Class 6, Chapter 10, The Working Day, and Chapter 11, The Rate and Mass of Surplus Value. This was recorded live. Please be mindful, there will be some changes in volume. Begin
1: on the chapter on the working day. I thought I'd begin by uh, reading you something out of a book uh, on migrant labor in China. Because I think uh, uh, what Marx describes in this chapter is not anachronistic at all. Uh, it's, it's a good description of the conditions of labor uh, in many parts of the world uh, and uh, I think we should recognize that in the same way that Marx is describing the working day as a product of the laws of motion of capital, so those laws of motion of capital are still operative and to the degree that uh, China joined the world capitalist system and became open to uh, the laws of motion of capital. It produced uh, kinds of results, which I'll just read to you from this book by Punyai The Migrant Labor in China. When, Ch- when the Chinese government does not enforce labor law, employers like Foxconn feel free to ignore state restrictions on overtime to flexibly meet global just-in-time manufacturing and logistical imperatives. On the factory floor, work stress, associated with the scientific production mode and inhumane management is intense. Alienation of labor and the lack of social support are common experiences. Young migrant workers in their late teens and mid-twenties who have been placed in the first-class, Foxconn, factory-cum-dormitory environment experience severe loneliness, anxiety and alienation. Suicide is merely the most extreme manifestation of the migrant work experience for hundreds of millions. Contradictions between capital and labor ultimately have accumulated at the point of production and daily reproduction, resulting in widespread labor grievances, as well as struggles. As you may know, there was a wave of suicides uh, at Foxconn in 2010, 2011, which created a great deal of international attention. Uh, In the wake of the multiple suicides, Foxconn dormitories throughout the country were all wire-grilled. The company installed three million square meters of safety nets, which were hung around outdoor stairways of dormitory buildings to prevent employees from jumping. Workers now live in a literal as well as metaphorical cage. I think that uh, Marx's commentaries in here are relevant You can see the association. But I think also it's it's interesting to look at the way in which Marx sets up why things happen this way and some of the side consequences uh, of uh, what is happening. As you know, uh, we've already established the theory of surplus value. The theory of surplus value simply states that there's a difference between what workers produce in a day, and the number of hours in a day it would, it would take to reproduce the value of their own labour power. If the value of their own labour power is reproduced within after six hours of work, uh, then there's more hours after that uh, which can be used to produce surplus value for the capitalist. So Marx talks off talking about this. Um, he then kind of says, Well, we've already fixed the value of labour power. By assumption. Uh, But uh, the length of the working day is something which is variable and the question then arises what is uh, the length of the working day going to be? Uh, Marx talks about this and observes that the length of the working day fluctuates within boundaries both physical and social. You can't go more than 24 hours and there's social limits but these limiting conditions he says are of a very elastic nature. and allow allow a tremendous amount of latitude so we find working days of many different lengths of 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 and 18 hours. So, what then is a working day, he says? At all events, it is less than a natural day. How much less? The capitalist has his own views on this point of no return, the necessary limit of the working day. As a capitalist, he is only capital personified. Again, notice the way in which Marx abstracts from the pers- actual person of the capitalist for the persona that the capitalist must uh, adopt in order to play the role of the capitalist. Uh, as a capitalist, he is only capital personified. His soul is the soul of capital. But capital has one sole driving force, the drive to valorize itself, to create surplus value to make its constant part the means of production, absorb the greatest possible amount of surplus labor. Capitalist dead labor, which, vampire-like, lives only by sucking living labor, and lives the the more labor it sucks. The time during which the worker works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he has bought from him. If the worker consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. Now there's a a lot in this chapter which is about the question of the temporality uh, and the time and the time world in which uh, the the laborer is forced to live. And he sets up a sort of fictional conversation between capitalist and worker. The capitalist has bought the labor power, says that labor power belongs to me. I can do with it as I want. I'm, I'm owner of it and you can't tell me anything about what I should or should not do. Uh, The worker responds by kind of saying, yeah, but during that time you may actually deprive me of my life. Uh, You may deprive me of my living conditions. You may deprive me of uh, my very, very being. And this conversation is that both of them, uh, as Marx points out, uh, have the right of the law of exchanges on their side. So in the first section, he ends up with, I think, a very important uh, point. Leaving aside certain extremely elastic restrictions, the nature of commodity exchange itself imposes no limit to the working day, no limit to surplus labor. The capitalist maintains his rights as a purchaser when he tries to make the working day as long as possible, and where possible, to make two working days out of one. On the other hand, the peculiar nature of the commodity sold implies a limit to its consumption by the purchaser, and the worker maintains his right as a seller when he wishes to reduce the working day to a particular normal length. There is therefore an antinomy of right against right, both equally bearing the seal of the law of exchange. Between equal rights, force decides. Hence, in the history of capitalist production, the establishment of a norm for the working day presents itself as a struggle over the limits of that day, a struggle between collective capital, the class of capitalists, and collective labor, i.e. the working class. Uh, It's taken us 344 pages to get to class struggle, which is a bit peculiar when you hear these kinds of comments that all history is the history of class struggle, you would have thought it would have been there on page one, but... Okay, we've got here, we're there, we've arrived. Yay. You know. Now, there's something very interesting about this formulation. As you probably know, Marx has a very skeptical view of bourgeois theories of rights and justice and tends always to take very critical positions. He had earlier done that in Chapter 2 when he takes up Proudhon and the question of eternal justice. Um, But this does not mean that he is actually uh, throwing out the whole question of rights. I think that's probably misunderstood. Because at the end of this chapter, what, what is he saying? He's saying a law has to be passed which defines the rights of the capitalist and the rights of labor. So he's not against the, uh, a general argument about rights, but he's, what he's saying is that rights are going to be determined by the dynamics of class struggle. And uh, the struggle of the working class here is over rights. So it's not as if you go to the work, you know, working people and say, rights don't matter. No, r- their rights matter. And therefore, to get their rights written into law is a strong objective of what the class struggle is about. But what Marx is against is the idea that there is some super theory of justice, a platonic idealist version of justice and and right that can somehow or other be appealed to as the right way in which to resolve this question of the length of the working day. And he's saying that is the wrong way to go. If you go back into uh, uh, Plato's dialogues, Plato sets up a dialogue with uh, uh, somebody called Thrasymachus, uh, and uh, they have a debate over the question of right, and Thrasymachus' position is that uh, right is determined by whoever has the power to fix it. Uh, that the right uh, is always the right of the ruling class. Uh, Plato disagrees with that, and therefore writes, you know, puts a, has a more kind of different approach. Uh, but Marx, I think, is kind of setting up this notion that there is always a struggle of some kind over a question of this sort. But notice something here also that you cannot get at what is, should be the length of the, writing of the working day uh, by a study of the market. The market doesn't tell you that. The market may play a role in the sense that in a situation of a vast surplus of unemployed laborers, uh, it will be easier for capitalists to impose their own notion of right But there is no market process to decide what the length of the working day will be. Uh, Which actually poses a very serious problem for economic theory. Because if it can't be determined by market, then, you know, there's a real issue. And that explains why you will read right the way across the whole field of economic theory, and you won't find anything about the struggle over the length of the working day except maybe in some footnotes somewhere way, way back. Whereas for Marx, this is a crucial starting point, and it is something that has been struggled over for a very long time, and therefore it is something that should be actually right up front in the analysis. And this again, I think, distinguishes Marx's political economy very much from bourgeois political economy, which averts its gaze when it comes to this question of what's the length of the working day. So, this first section then I think is setting up this idea that between equal rights, force decides. And there's always therefore a question over the issue of rights. For instance, I worked a lot with the notion of the right to the city, and people say, Well, what is the right to the city? You say, Well, it, you know. You give a Thrasymachus, the right to the city was... The people who built Hudson Yards didn't actually... They exercised their right to the city. And they had the right to the city because they had the power. People who wanted affordable housing didn't have any right at all. So between two rights, force decides. And you know where the force resides. So... This is, I think, a very uh, important passage and, and this notion of right against right, both equally bearing the seal of the law of exchange and that between equal rights, force decides. Force here, by the way, it's not, you shouldn't associate it immediately with violence. It's, it's, it's the exercise of political power. And, of course, violence may be involved and historically has been involved. But, but it's not you know, Marx saying this is going to be settled by violence. No, it's going to be settled through a conflict, a power conflict between different factions of capital on the one hand and workers on the other. Okay, in Section 2, Marx talks to other about other systems which... Uh, produce the work on surplus labor. His main point here is that historically there have been systems, and he very much likes the Corvée system example, because it's there very clear to everybody what is the surplus value. That uh, you work three days for yourself and three days for the Lord of the manor. And there it's very clear, everybody knows what's happening, that three days your labor is is actually being taken and used by somebody else. The other three days you're reproducing yourself on on your own plot of land. Uh, But this clarity which exists in the corvée disappears in the wage system. The worker gets a wage for a working day. There is no way to tell when they have produced enough value to cover their own costs of reproduction, and there's no way to tell what the surplus value is. So what is very evident within the Corvée system uh, disappears from view in the wage-labor system. And something else about the Corvée system, which Marx obviously enjoys relating, is this business of how how... The question of what is a day's labor uh, gets transformed through the Corvée system uh, by kind of saying well uh, the measure of a day's labor is that you clear this amount of field and it turns out that laborers couldn't possibly clear that amount of field they could only clear about half of it so in effect uh, the Corvée system defined a day's labor sometimes six days labor or ten days labor of, of physical time and he quotes this example of moldavia at the end about the reglement organique when the boyar drunk with victory claimed that 12 corvée days amount to 365 days in the year now here i think you're encountering a principle which is going to carry over to the analysis of factory labor and the like, which is the manipulation of temporality. And the manipulation of temporality and, and, and is, is something which is politically possible. And decisions about temporality and how to define temporality and all the rest of it uh, become very, uh, very political and in a number of dimensions. For instance, way on in the text, uh, there is this question of uh, child labor. Uh, and then the question arises, when is, uh, at, at what age does does somebody cease to be a child? And Marx kind of says, well, capitalist anthropology said you cease to be a child when you're eight years old. Now, again, you know, we have certain definitions for, for, you know, of, of that sort in our society too. So there are decisions made. Uh, decisions over uh, also, of course, uh, uh, retirement ages, things of that sort. So these, these, all of these decisions can be uh, are, are political decisions and there's not just one sort of unified uh, temporality. So Marx writes a lot about that, and I think, uh, you know, but comes to this point of, of 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 insisting that small thefts, and this is on three fifty two, he starts talking about these small thefts of capital from the workers' meal times and recreation times are also described by the factory inspectors as petty pilferings of minutes. Snatching a few minutes, or in the technical language of the workers, nibbling and cribbling at meal times. It is evident that in this atmosphere the formation of surplus value by surplus labour is no secret. And he quotes somebody If you will allow me, as I was informed by a highly respectable master, to work only ten minutes in the day over time, you put one thousand a year in my pocket. Moments are the elements of profit. That the capitalist concern with the temporality of the labor process has to be very fine-tuned and will be very fine-tuned. And it will define the effectiveness uh, of the surplus-value production machine. The third section deals with uh, description of conditions in, in sectors of British industry not covered by the Factory Act. And we find there's lower life expectancy, uh, that uh, diseases, the, and you go through all the different industries and adulteration of bread, the matchmaking and the so on. And I think this is a um, a thing, some of, some of the consequences of, uh, of, of, of this, yeah. which he takes up on 363, where he talks about this railway accident, which uh, plainly came from uh, work, people working beyond the limit in which they could continue to concentrate very carefully um, and and how the courts dealt with uh, that. And then uh, on page six, 364, Marx uh, relates the case of uh, Marianne Walkley, 20 years old, employed in a highly respectable dressmaking establishment, exploited by a lady with the pleasant name of Elise, and uh, it was about her white condition, about her living working conditions. Uh, Marianne Walkley had worked in uninterruptedly for 26 and a half hours with 60 other girls, 30 in each room. The rooms provided only one third of the necessary quantity of air measured in cubic feet. At night, the girls slept in pairs in the stifling holes into which a bedroom was divided by wooden partitions. Ann Walkley fell ill and died on Sunday. Without the astonishment of Madin Elise, having finished off the bit of finery she was working on. And the doctor said, Mary Ann Walkley died from long hours of work in an overcrowded workroom. Um, death from overwork. Uh, in- interesting, the Japanese still have a uh, category for that it's uh, karoshi. Uh, and uh, the Chinese also have a similar category. Uh, uh, problems. So these are the kinds of conditions which, uh, which, which Marx is emphasising. Again, nearly all of this is taken from uh, the factory inspectors and, and, and other reports, which is interesting because the question is why would the state set up such an inspection system and what would it mean. Uh, section 4, Marx talks about the day work and night work, the shift system. It exists for a very simple reason. In so far as the means of production uh, are not uh, uh, being utilized, their mere existence forms a loss for the capitalist in a negative sense, For, for while they lay fallow, they represent a useless advance of capital. The continuity of the production process becomes crucial. If it is not in motion. We've seen this argument before. If the machines are not in constant use, they're losing their value. And therefore, there is a tremendous incentive for a capitalist to recuperate the value in a machine by working it 24 hours a day. If you want to work it 24 hours a day, obviously you can't work one laborer 24 hours a day, so you go to this shift and relay system Uh, which means that it's night work, and then he goes into some of the problems of night work. Uh, But notice that the principle that lies behind this is that any slowdown or any break in the continuity of the flow of capital is a loss for capital. Therefore, capital will invent means to ensure the continuity of the flow. And the continuity of the flow of the value of a machine is that it is being employed all the time. And you can also see this uh, actually having another dimension, which Marx doesn't mention here, but which comes up later, uh, which is this. that Let's suppose you we bought a machine which has a certain efficiency and you spent uh, half a million dollars on it and it's going to last you, you think, uh, 10 years if you employ it just uh, on a sort of 12-hour rather than 24-hour basis. Somebody comes up with another machine which is just as efficient, if not more efficient, which only costs half a million dollars. Well, you're going to have to compete with... Uh, and, and you see there's, there's obsolescence going on here which is, which is different from depreciation from simply being used and, and over time. And technical change is so fast that capitalists want to get back their value out of the machine as fast as they can before a new machine comes on the market which is cheaper and more efficient. So again it's not simply that you want to keep it, you know, get the money back, but you want to get it back before you're competing with people who have much more efficient machinery than you have. So there is there's, there's what Marx later on will call moral depreciation going on. It's a very strange term, but that's the term he uses, which is the depreciation of the value of a machine, which is not out of the use of the machine, but by the coming onto the market of competing machines which are cheaper and more efficient. And again, you want to get your capital value back as fast as you can. One of the ways in which, of course, that is assisted, and this was raised uh, last week or a week before, is having a depreciation schedule through the tax system, which immediately allows you to take all of the value back of the machine in one year. uh, So that you don't have to depreciate it over a long period of time, you basically get the value back immediately. So one of the ways in which you, you you help the tax system can be constructed to help uh, deal with that problem is yeah. is through that so there's uh, a lot of stuff about the, the what happens to the shift system. Uh, there are uh, uh, some sort of Victorian morality questions about having women and men and children all kind of in the same labour space uh, in the middle of the night, what kinds of things can happen, and uh, this is considered uh, a a moral problem as well as a a disciplinary problem. So this then takes Marx in Section 5 onto the struggle for a normal working day. Um, As we've seen the question is, what does capital want to do? Uh, and it, He starts off the chapter by saying, it is self-evident that the worker is nothing other than labor power for the duration of his whole life, and that therefore all his disposable time is by nature and by right labor time to be devoted to the self-valorization of capital. Time for education, for intellectual development, for the fulfillment of social functions, for social intercourse, for the free play of the vital sources of his body and his mind, even the rest time of Sunday. What foolishness. But in its blind and measureless drive, this its insatiable appetite for surplus labor. Capital oversteps not only the moral but even the merely physical limits of the working day. It usurps the time for growth, development and healthy maintenance of the body. It steals the time required for the consumption of fresh air and sunlight. It haggles over meal times, We're possibly incorporating them into the production process itself so that food is added to the worker as to a mere means of production, as coal is supplied to the boiler and grease and oil to the machinery. Then he goes on, Capital asks no questions about the length of life of labour power. What interests it is purely and simply the maximum of labour power that can be set in motion in a working day. It attains this objective by shortening the life of labour power, in the same way as a greedy farmer snatches more produce from the soil by robbing it of its fertility. Interesting point here. Both labour and nature are seen as forms of wealth, which is different from value. Wealth is really defined as the, the command we have over Uh, objects and events around us so that we can live our lives to some degree of comfort. And what Marx is pointing to here is the sources of wealth. I don't know if you remember this, way back in one of the first chapters. And he kind of says, labor uh, is its father, nature is the mother. Uh, And here he's kind of saying, The capitalist, driven by this desire for surplus value, is going to actually physically destroy the two sources of wealth, the two primary sources of wealth in any society, and in capitalist society as well, which is the laborer and the land. And this theme is going to come up several times in capital. And I've mentioned, you know, the, the metabolic relation to nature, right, in the, the general diagram I had used. Uh, the metabolic relation to nature is one of the uh, important features of, of the, the, the general diagram, and of course, the relationship to uh, the free gifts of labour. But you're going to destroy that, that bountiful heritage of the free gifts of labour and the free gifts of nature by the search for, ceaseless search for uh, surplus value. By extending the working day, therefore, capitalist production, which is essentially the production of surplus value, the absorption of surplus labor, not only produces a deterioration of human labor power by robbing it of its normal moral and physical conditions of development and activity, but also produces the premature exhaustion and death of this labour-power itself. It extends the worker's production time within a given period by shortening his life." And then he points out that, that at some point or other even the capitalist will realise this is a, a, a stupid thing to do. It would seem therefore, says Marx, that the interest of capital itself points in the direction of a normal working day. And he then has a kind of a a sidebar on uh, the political economy of a slave-owning society and the slave trade. uh, And how in some instances um, prior to commodification, uh, slave owners would not work their slaves to death, uh, particularly if they had no easy supply because there was very important to keep the slaves alive, but he then goes on to say um, what happens when uh, the slave system comes into contact with the surplus value grabbing system and then you get uh, some of the worst and most horrific forms of uh, 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 exploitation of, of, of labor um this leads on Marx to kind of say well where does la- capital get its labor supply from over time what experience generally shows to the capitalist is a constantly excessive population an excess in relation to the capital's need for valorization at a given moment although this throng of people is made up of generations of stunted short-lived and rapidly replaced human beings plucked so to speak before they were ripe Experience shows too how the degeneration of the industrial population is retarded only by the constant absorption of primitive and natural elements from the countryside, and how even the agricultural labourers, in spite of the fresh air and the principle of natural selection that works so powerfully amongst them, permits the survival of only the strongest individuals or already beginning to die off. In effect, the position of the capitalist is that. They don't care. Uh, They launch a situation for the sufferings of the legions of workers surrounding it. Uh, Everyone hopes that the crash will fall on the head of the neighbor after he himself has caught the shower of gold and placed it in secure hands. Après moi le déluge is the watchword of every capitalist and of every capitalist nation. Capital, therefore, takes no account of the health and length and life of the worker unless society for forces it to do so. Its answer to the outcry about the physical and mental degradation, the premature death, the torture of overwork, is this. Should that pain trouble us, since it increases our pleasure, profit? But looking at these things as a whole, it is evident this does not depend on the will, either good or bad, of the individual capitalist. Under free competition, one of the themes in Capital... come to is this notion of the coercive laws of competition that under free competition the imminent laws of capitalist production confront the individual capitalist as a coercive force external to him so it doesn't it doesn't matter what the moral concerns of the capitalist might be because coercive laws of competition force everybody to a certain standard of behavior and that standard of behavior is what is being described uh, in this chapter. And He then goes on to talk about the establishment of a normal working day. Uh, and there's been a very long history. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, the first statute of laborers back in 1349, which he takes up on page 383, Uh, Was about lengthening the uh, working day. You couldn't get people to, you know, so you had all kinds of legislation against lazy people who refused to work. So you started just the the question of the normalisation of the length of the working day. Early on, was actually pressure creating a law to force labourers to deliver their labour for twelve hours. And it's only in, in recent times, in more recent times in Marxism, that it's gone the other way around. Uh, the argument over the actual length of the working day uh, from three eighty six onwards if you if you read it carefully you 'll see the lineaments of an argument which of course is still with us that if you make conditions of life easier uh, so that workers have a lot of free time um, then this is not you know the, the large segment of the of, of the capitalist class as we saw in seniors last hour is going to say this is going to make it impossible for uh, for us to to earn a surplus value and uh, make a uh, make uh, a profit furthermore they will also say that this actually uh, will act to the detriment of of the workers uh and and uh there's, there's a sort of a, a moral argument that goes on within the bourgeoisie uh, uh, of, of how to how to handle uh, uh, these 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 questions um, so on three eighty eight he kind of says he talks that uh, well one of the ways in which uh, the laboring people could be disciplined uh, was uh, and, and and workers saved from uh, idleness, debauchery, and excess, uh, and, and forced to promote a spirit of industry, uh, that actually lowering the price of labor in the manufacturers and easing the lands of the heavy burden of uh, of poor rates, which is the welfare system, are uh, faithful. Uh, Uh, Eckert of Capital proposes the well-tried method of locking up workers that become dependent on public support. In one word, in an ideal workhouse, such an ideal workhouse must be made a house of terror and not an asylum for the poor where they are to be plentifully fed, warmly and decently clothed and where they do uh, but little work. In this house of terror, this ideal workhouse, the poor shall work 14 hours in a day allowing proper time for meals in such a manner that there shall remain twelve hours of neat labour. So the workhouse became a punitive institution, which was actually disciplining labour and disciplining the inhabitants to uh, working conditions uh, of the of the factory. This, by the way, is the sort of passage that Foucault uses a great deal in Discipline and Punish, um, and and even the institution of the workhouse. I mean, I mean. Foucault talks about the asylum, he talks about the clinic, he talks about all of these kinds of institutional arrangements. And Marx is talking about the institutional arrangements by which uh, laborers are inculcated with the work ethic, and you're trying to absolutely insist on on a work ethic. And that uh, laborers have to be cured from their tendency to engage in idleness, debauchery, and excess of all kinds. So there's this whole kind of disciplinary apparatus uh, which exists in society to ensure that people engage with time discipline and temporality, engage with uh, the necessity of uh, providing surplus value uh, for the capitalist class. And then Marx talks about the, the actual history of the struggle for normal working day and the laws of 1833, uh, 1844, 1847, 8, and then 1860. I don't intend to sort of discuss this at great length, but there are a number of points I want to make. The first is that uh, in order to understand this account And I think this is a a rather classic account where Marx talks about the the class forces that are assembled around a political question. Uh, To understand this, you have to understand something about what was going on in Britain uh, sort of in the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, Parliament uh, was a representational system uh, which uh, essentially benefited uh, the aristocracy and the landowners. Uh, some aristocrats uh, had what were called rotten boroughs. They they had within their power, you know, there were members of parliament who represented no more than 100 people who could easily be bought off by the law of the manor, who would tell them to vote for his candidate. So uh, there was a non-representative system. The industrial working, the industrialists in Britain were very concerned about the lack of political power relative to uh, the the landed aristocracy and the the landed class in general. There's a lot of agitation in the 1820s saying this is not a fair system, it's biased. And the industrialists uh, enlisted uh, the help of the What might be called the uh, the educated, self educated working classes, Uh, the artisans in particular. Britain at that time, about 80% of the working class were illiterate, about 20% were literate, and the 20% were literate, were usually highly literate. Uh, They were the printers and and the like, so that, for example, when Tom Paine published his Rights of Man, book uh, British government didn 't like it too much, but almost every printer immediately liked it and printed thousands of thousands of copies were spread all over Britain very fast so there was a, 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 a well read uh, artisan uh, class, and essentially the industrialists who didn 't have a majority said to them, "Look, we need a reform because uh, they, they fought." Uh, side by side to create the Reform Bill of 1832-1833, which became known in uh, working-class circles as the Great Betrayal, because the industrialists promised the working class all kinds of good things, but when the Reform Bill went through, uh, there was no representation for the working class. Uh, there was only representation for property owners, and and. Uh, So, but uh, the bill did, however, disempower to some degree the the landed aristocracy and did, to some degree, give some more power to the the bourgeoisie in general and the industrialists uh, in in particular. Uh, With that situation, to the degree that uh, the landed aristocracy didn't like the industrial working class, it was the landed aristocracy who, in many ways, started to put limits upon the industrial working class. It was a classic kind of class struggle. I mean, OK, you have a class alliance between industrialists and workers. The workers are disabused by, by the reform. Uh, the, the landed aristocracy then turns to the workers and said, we'll represent your case. So the landed aristocrats kind of, appoint the factory inspectors and so start to you know, put regulatory kind of stuff upon, upon uh, the industrialists. And so this is uh, something that goes on during the 1830s, 1840s, and becomes uh, very important in the passing of these uh, factory acts uh, and uh, uh, regulation of the working day. This goes on in the sort of 1840s, and there's a strong movement in 1840s. But then, of course, came uh, uh, 1848 and all of the events of 1848. Uh, The manufacturers uh, denounced, and this is on 396, uh, how how the uh, manufacturers struggled uh, against uh, this regulatory regime. Uh, they denounced the factory inspector as a species of revolutionary commissioner, reminiscent of the convention, it's a French uh, convention, who had ruthlessly sacrificed the unfortunate factory workers to his mania for improving the world. Uh, so, but this all came to grief. The preliminary campaign of capital thus came to grief, this is on 397, and the Ten Hours Act came into force on 1st of May 1848. Meanwhile, however, the fiasco of the Chartist Party, whose leaders had been imprisoned and whose organisation dismembered, had shattered the self confidence of the English working class. Soon after this, the June insurrection in Paris and its bloody suppression united, in England as on the continent, all fractions of the ruling classes landowners and capitalists, stock exchange sharks and small time shopkeepers, protectionists and free traders, government or opposition, priests and freethinkers. Young whores and old nuns. I don't know why they're there, but... Uh, under the common slogan of the salvation of property, religion, the family and society. It's very interesting in the history of capitalism. When they're in a crisis, they usually find some way to bring it all back to questions of property, religion, the family and society. I mean, I've lived enough in the United States to recognize those themes coming out again and again in electoral, election times. Everywhere, says Marx, the working class was outlawed, anathematized, placed under the law of suspects. The manufacturers no longer needed to restrain themselves. They break out in open revolt, not only against the 10 Hours Act, but against all the legislation since 1833 that had aimed at restricting to some extent the free exploitation of labor power. It was a pro-slavery rebellion in miniature carried on for over two years with a cynical recklessness and a terroristic energy which was so much the easier to achieve in that the rebel capitalist risked nothing but the skin of his workers. Again, this is Marx sort of saying, it's it's you, you have to look at the configuration of class forces, see how these class forces interacted in a particular historical moment. And in 1848, uh, the class as a whole came together and the industrialists and the landowners forgot their differences and said, oh my God, as a working class revolution occurred in Paris. Chartists might want to do one here. Uh, we've got to stop this uh, in its tracks. So now down comes the repression and, uh, and, 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 and that's it. So, but uh, nevertheless, the factory... Uh, system uh, was under regulation and on 401 Marx makes something again as interesting that uh, the law here and this is what I was saying at the beginning the law now becomes important A law has been passed how would that law be enforced will it be enforced and if so and, and Marx talks about the way in which the courts tended to side with the employers all the time uh, and, but nevertheless, there is a rule of law, and the rule of law is important. And you don't say there, <coughs> you don't say. Well, this is this is irrelevant. Uh, again, uh, in uh, two thousand and seven, uh, China passed a reform law, a very strong ref- reform law on labour practices in China. Uh, very interesting and when. In the migrant book, when when Punyai says, uh, "Well, if, the, if if the government authorities and and courts turn a blind eye, then Foxconn can get away with murder." And but the law on the books. And in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, the law was passed. Workers became very aware of their rights under the law. Uh, they sought to remedy injustices by vast amount of uh, unrest. Uh, what they found was the courts were inadequate. They, were, they, were, they, were, they took ages to determine anything. If they determined anything, it was often uh, something negative. So even though a law was passed, the effect of the law was simply to raise the consciousness of the working class as to their rights. And then demonstrate to them, as they tried to use those rights, that the law was useless. So the only move, move to do it was to take to the streets again. So, in fact, in China, after 2008 there was the, the street action of, of, of labor contests became uh, huge. Uh, but it was, again and again, uh, about the lack of enforcement of the law. And it was terribly important to have the law there. Uh, so the rule of law starts to become an important political question. As indeed, uh, you know, it's very interesting how in this country this kind of question of the rule of law—it's uh, becoming, you know, very significant. We see perfectly well that the law, the law gets perverted and the Supreme Court decisions go all one way rather than another, but nevertheless the fact that the law is there is something which can actually constrain some of the egregious uh, offences of it. Um, So, the working day then uh, is uh, ultimately being regulated but something begins to happen after 1850 or after 1860 Uh, so while he says that uh, that the triumph uh, the the principle had triumphed with its victory in those great branches of industry which form the most characteristic creation of the modern mode of production. Their wonderful development from 1853 to 1860, hand in hand with the physical and moral regeneration of the factory workers, was visible to the weakest eyes. And, and this is something also that goes on in bourgeois history. It's very interesting. Having proclaimed doomsday, so if you regulate the factory and if you do this, or you do that, things actually turned out to be much better. And as a result of that, or we get the following kind of comment, the very manufacturers from whom the legal limitation and regulation of the working day had been wrung step by step in the course of a civil war lasting half a century, now pointed boastfully to the contrast with the areas of exploitation which were still free. The Pharisees of political economy now proclaimed that their newly won insight into the necessity for a legally regulated working day was a characteristic achievement of their science. It will easily be understood that after the factory magnates had resigned themselves and submitted to the inevitable, capital's power of resistance gradually weakened, while at the same time the working class's power of attack grew, with the number of its allies in those social layers not directly interested in the question. Hence the comparatively rapid progress since 1860. Now again, something is going on here. Listen to the language. Working class power of attack grew with the number of its allies in those social layers not directly interested in the question. There is uh, uh, in Marx a recognition that sometimes political activism involves coalitions of some kind. And the coalitions... So who are these social layers not directly interested in the question. Well, there are, there are many people in society who look at, say, a particular social situation and politically side with workers mm-hmm. when once it is recognized the kind of living conditions under which they, they are existing. So the factory acts uh, become more common then what happens, which is interesting, is that after 1860 or so, there is another means by which surplus value can be procured, which is what we're going to be talking about next week. And therefore, the need to extend the working day and push the working day to this level of you know extremes and, and the like, the need. to to get surplus value by extending the working day is much diminished for for a variety of reasons. One is that the regulatory conditions which are set up actually end up making uh, for a working class that is uh, more efficient and effective, uh, healthier, and therefore can actually be much better... Uh, as workers uh, in terms of the intensity of their labor and all the rest of it uh, by the very fact that they're only working, say, 10 hours a day instead of 12. By the same, by the same token, uh, you also find that there are other ways in which capital can actually accumulate surplus value and the, so therefore the pressure on to, to extend the working day uh, becomes less and less. That leads into section 7, where Marx talks about the relationship between what was going on in Britain in terms of the regulatory regime that's in Britain and how that regulatory regime becomes more generalized in in Europe. Uh, As soon as the Factory Acts had conquered the original domain of the new mode of production, it was found that in the meantime many other branches of production had made their entry into the factory system properly, so-called, with more or less obsolete methods, such as potteries, glassmaking, etc. So these are all gradually incorporated within the regulatory regime. Uh, And uh, the history of the regulation of the working day is still going on over this, there's still struggle going on over this regulation. This proves conclusively that the isolated worker, the worker as free seller of his labor power, Succumbs without resistance once capitalist production has reached a certain stage of maturity. The establishment of a normal working day is therefore the product of a protracted and more or less concealed civil war between the capitalist class and the working class. The English factory workers were the champions, uh, not only of the English working class but of the modern working class in general, just as their theorists were the first to throw down the gauntlet. To the theory of the capitalists hence the philosopher of the factory he mentions this guy uh, Ure, considers it a mark of an inextinguishable disgrace on the part of the english working class that they wrote the slavery of the factory acts on their banners as opposed to capital which was striving manfully for the perfect freedom of labor The conclusion here, however, is, 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 is interesting. When the transaction, it, uh, the, the contract by which he sold his labor power to the capitalist proved in black and white, so to speak, that he was free to dispose of himself. But when the transaction was concluded, it was discovered that he was no free agent, that the period of time for which he is free to sell his labor power is the period of time for which he is forced to sell it that in fact the vampire will not let go while there remains a single muscle sinew or drop of blood to be exploited for protection against the serpent of their agonies the workers have to put their heads together and as a class compel the passing of a law an all-powerful social barrier by which they can be prevented from selling themselves and their families into slavery and death by voluntary contract with capital in the place of the pompous cap- catalogue of the inalienable rights of man, there steps the modest Magna Carta of the legally limited working day, which at last makes clear when the time which the worker sells is ended and when his own begins. Two things about this. One, one is that when you look at this chapter, w- what is Marx arguing? Is he arguing for a complete revolution of a capitalist mode of production? Or is he arguing for a pattern of reform within capitalism that stabilizes the capitalist system and saves the capitalists from the insanity of destroying the sources of all wealth? Which one one is he doing? I don't see a revolutionary rhetoric here. What I do see is Marx kind of saying a class alliance can be constructed between the working class and other elements in society that is going to put a regulatory regime on capital, which is going to do what? It's going to free labor from having to work, say, 12 hours a day to only having to work 10 hours a day This is very reformist, right? Yet, at the same time, it's pointed to something very important, which is that the free time of the working class. And free time is one of the big objectives of political struggle. And I think that's... And then you ask yourself, how much free time and why is Marx so focused on this on this particular aspect of what working class life is about? In Volume 3 of Capital, he has this famous kind of passage where he says, the realm of freedom begins when the realm of necessity is left behind. And he gives sort of a tremendous kind of rhetoric about freedom and and. and emancipation of workers and all the rest of it. And then right at the end of this kind of set, uh, rhetoric, you know, beautifully written set, he says, the first step on this is regulating the length of the working day. <clears throat> My own way of thinking about this is to say this is, this is a kind of revolutionary reform. If you cut the working day from 12 hours to 10 hours, Okay, there's less strain on the worker. It's a reform. But let's suppose you went from 10 hours to 6 hours, and then 6 hours to 3 hours. Then that reform comes to a point where it actually will do what the capitalists fear, which is will destroy the capitalists' ability to extract surplus value. So it's... And to the degree that the length of the working day is not, there's no market process to decide it, it's a political question. To put it in the forefront of what politics is about then leads to uh, a discussion on how can we construct a society where basic needs are covered in such a short period of time that the rest of the time is totally free time. And to some degree, uh, the the point I think I, the, the, that I would extract from Marx is that we should look at that history of that struggle over the length of the working day, and the various alliances and forms and particular situations in which it operates. We should look at it internationally, in the way he does towards the end, by talking about the relationship between you know, what's happening in Britain and what's you know, the failure of regulatory reforms. To, to be imposed in, in much of the rest of Europe, and that therefore the British working class, by pushing in, in the way it is done, and also those elements in the population, those elements. And there, are you know, all of the people, I don't know, the lawyers, the uh, many other agents of civil society who look at the situation and say, it is not civilized. <clears throat> Uh, to live in a country where conditions of labor are of this sort. So that that I think is a, 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 a very important discussion to have. Uh, but I think Marx is fairly clear that without f- waging struggles of this kind, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. I mean, you can do a Fourier type uh, imaginary of you know what the world would look like if uh, all work was converted into play Um, you couldn't do that kind of thing but marx is much more sort of um, restricted it seems to me in terms of his uh, of his ambition but he's very clear as he says here that Workers have to take care of the serpent of their agonies and they have to put their heads together and as a class compel the passing of a law and all-powerful social barrier by which they can be prevented from selling themselves and their families into slavery and death by voluntary contract with capital. But then comes we have to replace the pompous catalog of the inalienable rights of man. So you're not gonna go for some vast rights stuff There steps the modest Magna Carta of an actual limitation on the length of the working day, which frees certain amount of time I Find this a very very uh, Meaningful chapter both politically and also historically and I think also theoretically Uh, The theoretical part is fairly easy to understand. I think the history is kind of interesting and many of the features of that history, including the, the way in which the capitalists make arguments about uh, you know, how they're benefiting all of society by keeping workers out of trouble by employing them for 12 hours a day. Uh, they said that about child labor. Well, if the kids are not down the mines, they're out there, nobody's unsupervised, and they get up to all kinds of mischief and become terrible citizens. So it's much better that they're down the mines for 10 hours a day because that keeps them occupied. What kind of argument is that? You know, but it was the sort of argument that was being being made, and we still see versions of that argument uh, around us. Maybe we should stop here, and I'll maybe come back and talk a little bit about it. See, can get into some uh, discussion uh, about this chapter. Well, chapter eleven, which I, I do want to cover, on the rate and mass of surplus value, is. Uh, um, has has some interesting points which we, we need to get to, but I think it might be a useful point to sort of get your reactions to this uh, uh, to this chapter. We don't have some, uh, uh, can somebody grab the microphone down there and hand it around to us? okay okay, sorry. <laughs> Anyone want to comment on their thinking about this chapter?
2: My, My sense of what you're saying is that Marx is advocating for continuous struggle from the working class. But is there ever, theoretically, is there ever a time when that struggle can end?
1: Uh, well, my my view of it is that uh, if the struggle gets the working day down to three hours a day, you're pretty much there. Um, I I don't. When he kind of says as he does in Volume Three, the the, the realm of uh, freedom begins when the realm of necessity is left behind. It means that you've got to cover the realm of necessity. So I think that Marx does argue that. There has to be a social process whereby all of us are fed adequately, housed adequately, clothed adequately. So basic necessities are taken care of. But if we can take care of those necessities in you know three hours a day, then we will be free to do what we like. The big question then is how do we get to that point? And I think that Marx is an incrementalist here by kind of saying, in effect, that you know, this has been going on for a well, hundred years, more or less, uh, and we can expect it to go on, but progressively it, it can actually increasingly empower the working class, as, you know, when you look at it from where he was, was sitting, uh, later on social democratic parties began to uh, to do that. But they never brought it down to three hours a day. Uh, French socialists, uh, and uh the, all of the negative publicity from the uh uh international monetary fund by uh, having a working week of 35 hours and and one of the big struggles mayor of macron is to get it back to 40 hours you know because the coercive laws of competition are such that french industry is having a hard time competing with everybody else who has 40 hour weeks you know so this is where the coercive laws of competition come in and i think marx is being very clear that that that, the the coercive laws of competition are uh, the problem as in the chinese case uh, if you want to dominate the world and become the world's uh, sort of uh uh, industrial uh, base then then you're going to have to concede labor conditions of the sort that we find in Foxconn and elsewhere. I, I mean, there is, a, there is a kind of interesting question, I mean, which I think we might wanna, you, you might wanna think about, which is what's the relationship between uh, reformism and revolution? I think Marx is, is, is saying that something which is a reform because he doesn't go any further than a reform here. He doesn't say we should get out of the wage system altogether. <coughs> he doesn't say that here. He does it elsewhere, but not here, which is a, bit, a little surprising. So it's not a, it's not a revolutionary argument he's, he's making, but it is a reformist movement, but argument. But you but you can turn that reformist movement into a sort of revolutionary reform. <coughs>
2: I wanted to um, discuss the transition from the uh, daily day work, day waging um, per day or per week or month or whatever it was to the hour and how we have a culture in this advanced capitalism of America anywhere where there's so much of, the, of society or of the people who are in desperate situation, who are in the service industry rather than in industrial industrial, um, production, and how they are essentially on on a wage per hour system, and how they are um, competing to be exploited, is what happens now, is that, yeah, they have three hours a day of wages and three hours a day of work, and that's not unusual. And it's also not unusual for people to be working uh, six different jobs. And that it seems things have turned into their opposite in, in the structure and I'm wondering um if you can talk about that when that happened, when it became this complete dismissal of people wanting less work time to people wanting more work time, and uh, now they have more work time now they have more free time however um it's hardly a um successful communist right. um Reform that's taken place. Do you understand what I'm trying to yeah. discuss? Here? Yeah,
1: I mean, ob- obviously the the, the labour systems have uh, undergone considerable transformation. Uh, and I, I again, if you if you were writing this chapter today, I think you would have to deal with all of the elements that you're uh, that that you're uh, talking about. Um, and, and some of the arguments that he that he comes up with here, I didn't mention one of them is that, for, for, for instance, um, if, if you reduce wages, uh, people have a hard time making ends meet and they will therefore want to have extra hours to get enough wages to cover their debts and their needs. And that, therefore, individual workers may well uh, want overtime. You know, uh, I came across this in in, in China when one of the factories I visited uh, asked the manager, "Do you have a do you have a problem of getting people to uh, do overtime?" The answer is no. They're constantly demanding overtime. And then you look and say, well, why is that? uh, The figures were something like this. The the monthly salary was around $60. 45 were deducted immediately for uh, board and lodging. So that actually people were living for $15 of their own a month. But if they got overtime, they could double that and get $30. (laughs) So they were demanding overtime because that gave them, instead of $15 a month, they would get $30 a month if they could do the overtime. So they themselves voluntarily pushed for overtime and and, and would volunteer to do it. So there was absolutely no problem of, 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 in, in the factory. Of... So, so questions of this kind, and Marx deals with a, a similar case here, part of the argument here. Um, so we would need to look, however, at uh, uh, the divisions of labor and how uh, it's just as you're saying, um, back in say 1970 it would be relatively uncommon uh, for people to have, uh, say, uh, three jobs or four jobs. Uh, a lot of people had kind of steady employment and may not as well remunerated, but the whole kind of neoliberal reconfiguration of the labor process and labor structures and so on and subcontracting and all the rest of it so that state employment disappears and you've got subcontracting employment coming in, which is temporary gig economy kind of stuff, all of those sorts of things. We would have to write another chapter on that. But again, then the question arises, what what kind of regulatory regime should the working class uh, struggle for? And, and who within the working class is going to struggle for it? I mean, this whole kind of thing where he says uh, the workers have to put their heads together and as a class. Uh, and, and As he mentioned, there's a lot of competition between workers in and, and, and the labor force. And, and then the question arises, how, how do laborers get organized? So that instead of it being an individual question, it starts to become a class question. And of course, what we've seen under the neoliberal regimes that have emerged since the 1970s onwards is a gradual destruction of the regulatory apparatus that uh, that, that that governs much of what goes on in in, in the workplace. So the, the National Labor Relations Board in this in this uh, in this country was uh, sort of a progressive sore of half. Reformist, progressive organization, up until when Reagan got hold of it and started to appoint all these people who kind of turned the decisions the other way. So that that so, and, and I think this may well come up in this current election. What kind of regulatory regime do we need to ensure that uh, working people can get a decent wage and, and, and to be able to live in a decent living environment? That, uh, those are the sorts of sorts of questions. It seems to me that come out of this. But again, we would have to look uh, at the the, the labour systems that have that have uh, emerged uh, partly out of the dynamics of class struggle. I mean, the dynamics of class struggle since the 1970s have effectively been against labour. Capital, you know, has the right to decide, and has uh, asserted its right to decide, and has had the force and the power to do it. And workers have been relatively disempowered, not totally so, of course, because we see various forms of action. But then you kind of say, all right, how are workers going to set up right now to be able to do something about this this system? And there are there are possibilities, a lot of possibilities, which are, in my view, not being not being pursued.
3: Yeah. So basically, I had two points to add to the discussion basic, uh, on the base of chapter number 10. The first one would be how to avoid a linear reading of chapter, of chapter 10 in the sense of, for instance, uh, believing that the working day is going to be from 12 hours in the 16th century to three hours in the 21st right. century, right. because that can be problematic in the sense that we cannot yes. is, uh, find the specificity of class struggle in the 16th century and like the modes of uh, technology that they were in that moment. And the, in the second perspective would be, how can we find the realm of freedom as taken for granted within the capitalist society? So maybe this idea of the realm of freedom and the realm of necessity, we cannot think in terms of that is already presented in capitalist society, because perhaps the time that is offered by this kind of society it is, already, it is already a product of the same kind of logic. So having three hours of work, and I don't know, 15 hours of free time, maybe we're going to reproduce this same kind of subjectivity yes. within the commodity society. So it can be kind of dangerous to find it yes. the way there.
1: Yeah, I agree with you about uh, the danger of a linear reading. This does crop up in in capital several times. Uh, Marx does have a bit of a teleological kind of instinct a lot of the time that uh, we're on this path and uh, this is this is where we're going to go. Um, there are other times when he's more nuanced uh, about the, the to and fro of class power and the like. So when you read his more political writings like the 18th Brumaire or the Civil War in France, uh, you you see a more nuanced uh, view. But in Capital, I think there is a a frequent uh, sort of turn to a kind of teleological kind of question. I personally don't accept that and would kind of say, well, you know, you can't do that. I want to import the thinking of the 18th Brumaire into here and and sort of have a, but there are other times when he talks about it in a more flexible way. I mean, for instance, this formulation that there was a contingent moment when a lot of this regulatory regime uh, over the factories and, uh, uh, and working day, that regulatory regime uh, arises because of a particular constellation of class forces at a particular historical moment uh, which could do that in 1847 couldn't do it in 1848 because 1848 uh, by then all elements of the bourgeoisie are terrified that socialism is around the corner and so they come back and unite so there is a if you like there is a certain contingency even in this chapter but I think there there is always this Teleological kind of push, uh, which I think we need to to be uh, aware of. Sorry, the second part of your. Oh, oh, realm of freedom, yeah. No, I, I, my own personal view is that by the time that the working day gets down to three hours a day, uh, the possibility of capitalist class power uh, being able to reproduce itself is kind of close to zero. So by then, you will have have at least the capitalist class, as we currently know it, will have effectively disappeared. Um, So I think that fear of the capitalist class, that an overly regulatory, fiercely strong regulation over the length of the working day and gradual reduction of the length of the working day is something that the capitalist has a good reason to be fearful of. Because at certain point uh, the, the struggle over time if you cut the capitalist capacity <clears throat> to command time in the way that uh, it's being commanded here, uh, if you cut that capacity then you've, 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 you're in an, you're in a, you must be in an alternative mode of production. So I think when I say that the long run, the realm of freedom uh, begins where the realm of necessity is left behind, we're talking about material well-being where the material male well-being of everybody is guaranteed to a certain level uh, and we're beginning to see arguments around that that sort of thing um, uh, in, in emerging but but you're right uh, that um, a uh, y- you know if 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 you're still in a capitalist mode of production with all capitalist social relations and this kind of thing and you've come down to uh, a working day of three hours a week—I I mean, I can't—or three, th- three hours a day. Oh, it would be very interesting to see what people would do with their time. And I think that this notion in here that the aim and objective of a socialist struggle is free time—and uh, be free time actually initially—I suspect though Marx doesn't say it here, free time to actually engage in organising. One of the problems, it seems to me, is in contemporary society is that people are so busy, they have so much time already taken up that they don't have time to organise. So that political organising is becoming less and less possible because the capitalist is, is, is cutting back on free time. The amount of free time which people have contemporary society is much less than it was say 30 or 40 years ago and so the question of free time uh, is, is I think being raised raised here but raised in this particular context uh, and it, it's clear that Marx thought this context was, was terribly important in order to understand uh, pol- the political dynamics and that struggles over time uh, We're going to be absolutely critical for the class struggle in 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 general
4: um so uh in terms of what you said about reform and uh revolution and what stance he's taking in this chapter specifically um when I think of This chapter, I think of uh, your mention of uh, Balzac and Colonel Chaubert in post-revolutionary France and uh, how it ended up mutating back to what it once was and maybe even worse. And uh, in terms of what you also said about contextuality, that some things in certain contexts can be revolutionary and in other contexts they can be reformist. Um, but this makes me come to the, uh, the question of where this plays out in the next 10 to 15 years where somebody can say, in the context of America, something like universal basic income could be, they can use the word revolutionary, but it's actually reformist because yeah. capitalists still get to keep their hordes and estates. And this, this brings me to that question in terms of like, temporally, what is something that is revolutionary and what is something that is reformist? against the test of time and the ability of the capitalist class to then morph things back into what they once were, because that's decisively what always ends up making things that seem revolutionary reformist in the end. Um, so just like how, how to really have something that in, in like a materialist sense gives us a way of looking at things in terms of is this actually revolutionary or is this reform?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I mean, if I could, I wouldn't be here. I mean, it would be, um, But you're right that uh, the, uh, there, are, there are reforms which actually open up paths. There are revolutionary moments that end up uh, becoming reformist and even kind of counter, counter-revolutionary. And uh, we've seen uh, uh, many elements of that. And I think we need to analyse each thing in terms of, uh, you know. Then I think part of the part of the question is, you know, in terms of the, what would be revolutionary in relationship to what Marx is talking about, is is finding an alternative mode of production. Uh, so so Marx has a, I think, uh, particularly in Capital, has a very targeted notion of what. Uh, I mean, he's looking at how capital reproduces itself, uh, and, and uh, part of the impetus of that is then to ask the question is, how can we construct a world which provides us with the wherewithal to live without reproducing the social relations of capital? How do we escape the power of the laws of motion of capital? Uh, Now, it's clear that when China entered the world market, it it had to succumb to uh, the capitalist laws of motion. And uh, therefore, much of what happened in China was going to be dictated by the coercive laws of competition. And we've seen what the result has been in terms of labor practices and and, and the like uh, in uh, and Shenzhen, Foxconn, and all those kinds of things. Now you, I would immediately say, well, this is pretty counter-revolutionary compared to what was going on before. But the trouble with what was going on before was there was no economic dynamism, and uh, large segments of the population were living under conditions of considerable impoverishment. That uh, Therefore there had to be some sort of attempt to increase the productivity of labor, change uh, the organization of production, uh, change social relations on the land, and a lot of that has been done. But it has been at the price of actually unleashing the forces of, of capitalist class consolidation uh, to the point where it's very hard now to, to accept that uh, China can be fully and so, uh, con- socialist by 2050 as, as uh, the president of China says it's their their objective. So, yeah, revolutionary and reform. I don't think we know the answer to that. And I think you're right to sort of say that something that appears revolutionary can pretty soon become counter-revolutionary. We saw that in, say, much of the Arab Spring, for example, went from seemingly... But I think we we then have to analyze why that may have happened in the way it did. And I think there are some some good analyses to be had of that that sort of problem. And then ask the question, what would have worked? Or would have worked better than what happened? Um, What would be the necessary conditions uh, for a a, a revolutionary movement to actually actually work? Uh, And uh, Marx, it seems to me, is trying to set up an understanding of capital that tells you uh, you know when when he gets to the end of his chapter on working day, he's saying basically the capitalists conceded eventually on the regulation of the length of the working day because they got benefits from it, turned out to be there you know it got after it got away from thepre mile deluge kind of economy into something which was a bit was a a bit more civilized and therefore satisfactory from the standpoint of. Bourgeois morality and those layers in the population that didn't like to see all this stuff going on. Uh, so, so it was partly that. So the the the, uh, the, the question uh, then then becomes: oh, Where uh, in this system are there are there openings for for transformative interventions? And I think that uh, that that is beginning to become clearer by Marx saying the working class has to put its head together. I mean, essentially what Marx is arguing here is that the class has to actually become conscious of its possibilities and organize. And if it doesn't do that, then nothing's going to really change. And you could argue that... Camp, the working classes, uh, given today's structures of division of labour and organisation and so on, uh, are less able to put their heads together to, to, to have some collective enterprise than, uh, than they were, say, maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Therefore, uh, we have seen a counter revolutionary movement of the neoliberal transformation. Uh, which has brought society back to conditions of living and labor, which are much more consistent with what Marx is talking about here than was the case in the 1960s when you had a a much more social democratic uh, structure around, at least in in Europe and North America, not in the rest of the world, of course. So, you know, do we want to rerun that history or do we want to uh, actually seek Uh, for some way to talk about the dispossession of uh, the capitalist class and the organization of an alternative mode of production. If so, what would it look like?
4: We'll take one question from online. This is from Stephen. Uh, In the chapter on the working day, Marx's analysis touches on many themes that prefigure later Marx's theorists of the state. In particular, his analysis seems to suggest the relative autonomy of the state and the way in which the hegemony or dominance of the capital as a class is organized in and through the state. The way in which class forces are mirrored within the state, even if only to the extent that workers are excluded from the state. And the ways in which the struggle of the working classes imposes political coherence on capital. Marx seems to suggest that the progressive faction of capital might not have gained dominance among the various fractions of capital without the external threat of labor. Would you please comment on your take on Marx's conception of the state as outlined in this chapter?
1: Yeah, the state is the regulatory authority uh, which which will pass the law. So uh, Marx is not arguing that. This is an irrelevant uh, question. Uh, He's arguing that uh, one step in the organization of a working class movement is to get enough power vis-a-vis the the state, either within it or by pressure from outside, so that the state finds itself forced to impose a law and a regulatory regime uh, upon how capital is operating. Uh, But then it's always possible for that political force, which is not sustained, uh, to lose power. I mean, if you look at how many regulatory uh, uh, forms that uh, Trump has kind of signed away in the last few years, you would see a, 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 a radical diminution in state interventionism on everything from environmental questions and uh, exploitation of the land and uh, labour questions and consumer questions and, and and financial kind of questions. So you just see a huge uh, withdrawal of the state from any kind of regulatory responsibility. Uh, and so, yes, the state apparatus is something. And I think we have to be very important here to, also to differentiate between different parts of the state. Uh, my own view is that the state apparatus uh, is uh, is divided between what might be called uh, uh, central nervous system st- structures uh, which have a lot to do with uh, dealing with the, the circulation and continuous accumulation of capital i'm thinking of treasury departments and central banks now central banks are not technically inside of the state, they're te- they're technically uh, independent in most instances of the of the state. But obviously, there's a, a kind of an alliance between uh, financial institutions and the state, and what I would call a state finance nexus, which is which is c- desperately concerned to stabilise uh, conditions for the accumulation of capital. But then there are aspects of the state about you know about agricultural management or education, uh, housing, these kinds of things, which are, again, very different. So rather than think about the state, I think we have to talk about uh, an an apparatus, a diversified apparatus of institutions which have different functions, sometimes competing against each other, sometimes uh, at loggerheads with each other within the the state apparatus, with uh, many peculiar links to uh, the private sector, for instance, the relationships between the, Central, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. It's not as if the Central Reserve does what the U.S. Treasury wants, or the U.S. Treasury does what the Central, what the Central Bank wants, but the two together uh, actually have a very important role in managing the conditionality of the reproduction of the capitalist class through perpetual accumulation of, uh, of, uh, of, of capital and this uh is something which is which is again uh you know in, in, when marx starts talking about uh the imposition of this regulatory apparatus in part the pressure for that comes from outside uh that uh, unrest in the streets for example will prevent the state from uh, freeing up uh <clears throat> labor a current example of that would be uh, one of the things that, that Macron wanted to do in France uh, was uh, to reform the Labour Law, to improve, quote, flexibility in the Labour force, which is a very neoliberal conception. And by flexibility, you mean the right to hire and fire as you want, and there were no barriers to, to, to doing that. Uh, the street demonstrations, which which, which preceded the the... the uh, the current ones, uh, effectively uh, sort of prevented the, uh, the passing of that law in the particular form that Macron uh, argued for it. And so, again, you know, how the state operates, and there's a lot of evidence, for example, that the Reform Acts of 1830s in Britain, uh, the landed aristocracy was in power they could have said no and they, in fact they did start to say no but then all of a sudden key elements of it said look there's so much re- unrest around that we're going to have to give in and uh, on these on these demands so the positionality of the state right now in relationship to capital and the like is, 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 has changed um, I would argue that uh, in many respects uh, The state is in an inferior position uh, vis-a-vis the the power of uh, finance capital that uh, if you look at uh, many state apparatuses, (coughs) uh, for example Greece, you wouldn't argue that the state dominates uh, the financial institutions and it's effectively dominated by the international monetary fund and, and other financial institutions and the banking sector in europe that's that, that's that's what dominates so the state is, is 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 an important player in all of this but disaggregate the state into different aspects and then look at how this relates to the dynamics of capital accumulation but it's often through the state that we see this kind of revolutionary movement that come across that if something looks revolutionary then the state apparatus will seize upon it and turn it around and turn it into something different. So it is part of this dynamism Uh, Marx does not really uh, get into here but which I think has to be uh, looked at more closely. If we I'd like just to uh, anybody want to say something because I just want to have a few minutes on the rate and mass of surplus value if we got Have we got time? Okay, I just want to deal a little bit with chapter 11. Marx plays one of his games here, you know. Okay, you can augment surplus value by by increasing the number of laborers you employ or increasing the rate of their exploitation. Uh, If you can't do one thing, you do another thing. But notice something here. He's introducing this idea that there's a big distinction in the capitalist mind between the rate of of surplus value or rate of exploitation and the mass of surplus value. This is an important uh, argument. What is the capitalist more interested in, the rate of surplus value or the mass of surplus value? Hmm? What do you think? Well, this this actually comes up in Volume 3 of Capital around the rate of profit. Because when Marx writes about the rate of profit, he's talking about declining rate of profit, but he's also talking about a rising mass of surplus value. The way to to think of it is this. Would you rather have a 10% rate of return on $10 or a 3% rate of return on a $1 million? What gives? you, hmm? Yes, the mass. yeah. You want the mass, not the rate. But the rate and the mass. But so Marx is actually playing here with the rate and the mass, and saying you've got to, you, you've got to look at the rate and the mass together. And and there are times when capitalists will concentrate on the rate, and the times when they're concentrated on the mass. Um, but you've always got to keep uh, uh, this question in mind, and actually he he prefaces uh, some ideas about the falling rate of profit uh, when he uh, sort of says uh, that there are certain contradictions in this relationship between uh, between rate and mass. Uh, where does he say this? Uh. Uh, This is on page 421. The law demonstrated above, he says, therefore takes this form, the masses of value and of surplus value produced by different capitals, the value of labor power being given and its degree of exploitation being equal, vary directly as the amounts of the variable components of these capitals, i.e. the parts which have been turned into living labor. This law clearly contradicts all experience based on immediate appearances. Everyone knows that a cotton spinner, who if we consider the percentage over the whole of his applied capital, employs much constant capital and little variable capital, does not, on account of this, pocket less profit or surplus value than a baker who sets in motion relatively much variable capital and little constant capital. For the solution of this apparent contradiction, many intermediate terms are still needed. Just as from the standpoint of elementary algebra, many intermediate terms are needed before we can understand that zero over zero may represent an actual magnitude. Uh, This contradiction would suggest that the rate of return for Uh, the cotton spinner, because they're employing much less labor, would be much lower than the rate of return uh, for the baker, who sets in motion relatively much variable capital and little constant capital. So see what's happening here is that this contradiction Poses, poses a very real problem as to what happens when you have fully automated production systems. Where does the rate of return come from? I mean, Where does the surplus value come from? And people raised this the other week, you know, when there's so much uh, automation that you have hardly any labor employed whatsoever and a vast output of goods. Well, we don't see a situation in which those companies which are doing that receive zero rate of return. In fact, some of them are highly profitable and get a great deal in the rate of return. Uh, so this is, a, this is a contradiction, however, because if, if labor is the source of value and surplus value, then you would presume that capitalists would want to maximize uh, the amount of labor and, and, and the, the, that they employ. When in fact, what we see historically is that most of the trends of technological innovation are labour displacing and labour saving. I mean, why would you why would you, why would you go for labour saving technologies when when labour is the source of value? You would think it would be the other way around. You would you would you know. So Marx is drawing attention to this because. This is this is a tension, but also in the falling rate of profit chapter, he's going to talk a lot about rising mass of surplus value on a falling rate. And I think you could see a recent example of this. I mean, again, rate of, take, take, for example, the rate of growth in China. Well, in the 1980s, it could be 12 or 15 percent, but it was 12 or 15 percent on not very much. Uh, by the time you get to now, you, 12 or 15% rate of growth on everything that's going on right now is kind of, would be a huge, huge increase. So the rate of, you know, rate of growth in China has come down to around 6.5% or something of that kind, which is still big. But nowhere near what it was. It was double that you know, 10, 15 years ago. But when you get to a certain size, there comes a point where increasing the mass becomes you know, more and more the issue. And if you can increase the mass, then of course you're going to absorb labor. If you've got a million people unemployed, then you, you know the expansion has to be you know, of a certain a certain sort. So, the, so so increasing the mass. But then also there's a question of uh, as it's going to be about distribution of the value, because at a certain point so this chapter on the rate and mass of surplus value is important and significant for what comes later. But it's also important also for you to, to, to bear in mind how, you know, how the rate and mass gets used. I, there was a report in the Financial Times recently where the Bank of England did a detailed study of the effects of quantitative easing on terms of the distribution of, uh, of income in society. And the conclusion was that the lower classes had benefited far more than the upper classes. And that this general story, which everybody was saying, which was, well, all of that quantitative easing went to the upper classes, was wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, I read the report and I was kind of disappointed, because I, didn't, I, didn't, I thought I'd be one of those who thought that all the benefit had gone to the upper classes. And it was only in the final sentence where it said, uh, for instance, they said they gave a, 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 an account of the, of the absolute amounts. And I think that the bottom 10% on average received something like £3,500 or something like that uh, over a five-year period of benefit uh the The top ten uh, percent received three hundred and twenty five thousand pounds of benefit, but it turned out that that three hundred and twenty five thousand pounds was only sort of a a seven percent increase, whereas the three thousand from the very poor people was a was a nine percent increase so the rate looked like it favored the lower classes, whereas when you looked at the mass you would say you know and actually, that was true of Trump's tax law, too. They started to kind of say, oh, typists benefited a great deal. They could buy an extra cup of coffee and they were, you know, 10% better off. Uh, and then you kind of looked at the major capital, huge amounts of mass. So be careful about the mass versus rate kind of question. And and, and, and Marx is, you know, just playing a very simple game about about this, but also getting to a point where there is this contradiction for which uh, many intermediate terms need to be kind of laid out. Um, So be careful about the uh, rate and mass kind of stuff. There are other things in here. Uh, For instance, the rate and mass enters in uh, on 424 over conditions of entry. If you want to set up a business and you want to set up an automobile plant uh, versus uh, you want to uh, set up a, uh, a bakery, say, how much mass of capital do you need to start? And this immediately creates barriers to entry. You need so much capital to create a big iron steelworks or an automobile factory uh so there are differential barriers to to entry so here too not only in terms of the output also the the immediate amount of of capital that you need to start a particular kind of activity uh is going to going to be very different from one sector uh to another so here too uh, the mass starts to become uh Oh, there's also uh, uh, beginnings of um, a discussion on 425, which I think is important. Um, Marx here kind of says, uh, At first, capital subordinates labor on the basis of the technical conditions within which labor has been carried on up to that point in history. It does not, therefore, directly change the mode of production. The production of surplus value in the form we have so far considered by means of simple extension of the working day appeared therefore independently of any change in the mode of production itself. It was no less effective in the old-fashioned bakeries than in the modern cotton factories." Um, There's a a general argument about Marx that, that Marx's thinking that says that the transformations in the productive forces, which would include many technologies and organizational forms and all the rest of it, that transitions in productive forces are the real motors of of historical transformation. You know, the tendency to take Marx and say it's all about production, productive forces versus social relations. And there's a rather, in my view, mechanical reading of Marx that puts productive forces up front and says, well, it's productive forces. In other words, technological determinism. The technologies change the world. But clearly, in this passage, capital subordinates labor on the basis of the technical conditions within which labor has been carried on up to that point in history. In other words, capital has developed using past technologies, a mode of production, uh, which pre-existed capital is mobilized by capitalists. Then it's a social relation between capital and labor, which actually precedes uh, the uh, revolutions in, in technologies. And he then goes on to say this, if we consider the process of production from the point of view of the simple labor process, The worker is related to the means of production, not in their quality as capital, but as being the mere means and material of his own purposeful, productive activity. In tanning, for example, he deals to the skins of his simple object of labor. It is not the capitalist whose skin he tans. So when you're looking at the realm of use values, uh, you're seeing uh, a a sort of qualitative uh, aspect of the labor process. Uh, simple labor process of purposeful, productive activity. And, but then you're, what's, what's driving the, uh, the transformations in that uh, production process uh, is simply the physical conditions. But then he says, but it is different as soon as we view the production process as a process of valorization. The means of production are at once changed into means for the absorption of the labor of others. It is no longer the worker who employs the means of production, but the means of production which employ the worker. Instead of being consumed by him as material elements in his productive activity, they consume him as the ferment necessary to their own life process. And the life process of capital consists solely in its own motion as self-valorizing value. Furnaces and workshops that stand idle by night, and absorb no living labour, are a mere loss to the capitalist. Hence, furnaces and workshops constitute lawful claims upon the night labour of the labour powers. As soon as a certain sum of money is transformed into means of production, i.e. into the objective factors of the production process, the means of production themselves are transformed into a title, both by right and by might, to the labour and surplus labour of others. An example will show in conclusion how this inversion, indeed this distortion, which is peculiar to and characteristic of capitalist production of the relation between dead labor and living labor, between value and the force that creates value, is mirrored in the consciousness of the capitalist. When you look at the labor process from the standpoint of valorization, you see something very, very different than when you look at the labor process as a physical production process. And again, Marx is putting this as a duality. It's not as if the physical production process is over there and the value is going over here. No, there's a single labor process. But right from the very beginning, as in the analysis of the commodity, it has a dual character. And the dual character is its physicality. And in its physicality, given the technology of the time uh, that, that Marx is talking about here, the laborer is in command of that physical process. And therefore, the laborer is also in charge of the instruments. So what the capitalist does is to take physically a situation in which laborers are in control of their instruments of labor and try to reorganize those laborers into a different kind of system of production. But when you look at it in value terms, what you're seeing is that from the value standpoint, it's surplus value that matters. And the cap and what happens in the labor process is that the, 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 the search for surplus value forces the laborers to actually uh, submit to the demand that they produce surplus value. So again, this is duality that arises, and it's echoed throughout capital. I mean, all the way through from from the beginning part of the first page of capital, where it's use value versus exchange value, where there's abstract labor and concrete labor. From a concrete standpoint, we have the laborer in command of the production process. From the abstract standpoint, the laborers are being forced to do things because the capitalist is in command and is going to force them uh, to use their physicality in such a way as to produce the value and the surplus value which the capitalist needs Uh, to survive. So this is, if you like, a a very important uh, uh, transition moment because we are now going to look uh, in the next chapters and next week I want to do chapter 12, which is a theoretical chapter, fairly short, but very dense and intense, and so you should spend quite a bit of time making sure you understand uh, chapter 12. And then we start to get into Uh, the very forms of the relative surplus value, which are chapter 13 and 14, which is on cooperation and division of labor. So I'd like to uh, do 12, 13, and 14 for next week, okay? I guess we're out of time now,
2: so let's leave it there. Thank you.